This episode is brought to you by Duplo Cloud, the leading dev and security ops as a service platform. Are you having trouble hiring skilled DevOps engineers? Are you taking months to implement security and compliance? Or maybe you're struggling to migrate your applications to the cloud. Duplo Cloud is a one-stop shop solution for all your DevOps, cloud automation, and compliance needs. From infrastructure provisioning and application deployment to security controls, compliance, certification, and alerts. For more information, visit duplocloud.com. That's D-U-P-L-O-C-L-O-U-D.com. Or get two months free access by contacting info at duplocloud.com. I will build only the things that I can be best in and I can maintain them over time. I have these two requirements. It's a very healthy culture to continuously remind yourself and the team, what are the things that you don't build and why? When you start, there are lots of things that sound really good and you always fear of missing out features that you may have done. In the end, you have to choose a path and stick to it because if you start having FOMO and go too broad, you will definitely lose. I need some traction. You need some traction. Let's get some traction. Hey, what's up, innovators, entrepreneurs, visionaries, and disruptors? This is your Traction Podcast host, Lloyd Lobo. We're a community of over 100,000 people, just like yourself, on a mission to help you get the methods, the money, and the madness to explode your business growth. Featuring stories and tactical advice straight from those who've done it before, like Shopify, Twilio, Asana, and many more. Explosive growth is every startup's dream, but it's not easy, right? It's never a linear path. And you see a lot of mistakes that can make or break your business's success as you're scaling your teams, troubleshooting your product, and getting your first clients. And you guys have made some mistakes in the past that you've learned from that has enabled you to not only become the fastest growing cybersecurity company in the world, but also get to a $6 billion valuation in 18 months. So you're the... VP of product and co-founder at Wiz. You come with more than 15 years experience in leading cybersecurity product development teams. You were the VP at Adalom, a leading cloud access security broker prior to its acquisition by Microsoft in 2015. And you've had a very interesting background from Israeli defense force to cybersecurity. Give us your backstory. Yeah, so I'm in Corsica and uh, yeah, I started in the IDF uh, in an elite uh, program. I studied math, uh, computer science, physics uh, in the Hebrew University. Then when I left the work there, I did cyber. And then when I left there, I founded the Adalom uh, with the same team that I founded later on with. Actually, we are a team. We go for more than 20 years together. And Adalom was a journey. It was a quick to something years where we've built like our first startup. It was a cloud security access broker, like a new market, Casby. And it was a quick ride. And basically we grew very fast, but we were acquired by Microsoft in 2015. In Microsoft, actually, we stayed for five years and we actually uh, 
grew the business from where it was in the startup, but all the way to Microsoft scale. So hundreds of millions of users, the entire piece of scaling up a, a product. And then two years ago, we left to found Wiz. So again, it's the same team. At Wiz, we are running, again, I was VP of products throughout the time. At Wiz, we are doing cloud infrastructure security. A product that you connect to your cloud environment in minutes, and basically it gives you everything you need to know about how to secure your cloud in the best way possible. So that's basically what we do. Your experience as a veteran of the elite 8200 intelligence unit of the Israeli Defense Force, where you were heading the cyber division and you were awarded the Israel Secretary of Defense Award for Excellence, what were some key development things you learned there that sort of shaped you as a founder, maybe? Wow, lots of things. I think that you realize that in the IDF, basically you realize how important it is to be the first, work with the best team. And working with the best team has a lot of, I think, implications on anything else you do. So it's, you're never like a lone wolf. It's always about working with the team around you and being successful in achieving like a higher goal that you work towards. And I think that also it requires you to be really the best. It, of course, it's like a, you feel the pressure and the need to be successful, right, in what you do because it's important. It's and you have the team to do it. So I think you develop some really good habits in how you think about problems practically, pragmatically, with the team in a very, I would say, like with expertise in mind because you want to be really better. And then I think it drives a lot of everything that goes. And you can see a lot of the, actually the ecosystem in Israel that started from these type of teams that were in this very similar experience, working together, high pressure, high requirements technically, and basically they, they formed the basis for what later on would be their startup. So that's definitely a shaping experience. High pressure, lots of discipline, and high work ethic here. So you said the best a few times. What does the best mean to you, working with the best, being the best? So I think in the end, there is a, this internal a, a need to think and you always i think that as we grow in the space there is so much knowledge to acquire right you can there are so many different areas and i think the need to know more the thing the thing the need to understand what is a true problem how can i really solve a specific problem better than other solutions out there so i can actually have the lead i think this is something that is essential to the way you think about and it includes a lot of things so you think about how can i do it technically the best but also how can i maintain it over time so i'm building a team you're not here for one time you're here for the long run right so how do you build like an ecosystem that supports you in becoming the best and if you think about it in many cases israel has like only three years in the military it's very short. So you have a lot of people that go in and out and you need to train them. So you need to basically have a really good understanding of what is this ecosystem that will make people successful and really good at what they do. So I think that's something that we think about. And for startups, it's a very similar experience, right? In many cases. So that's something we think about being the best. Now you talked about you working with your co-founders in the previous company and you've known each other for many years, but how did you meet them? How did you guys decide that this is the team, this is the one? How did you come together? So we studied together, we worked together. To be honest, when uh, 
we left to found uh, Adelom, so we just thought it was a good, you know, timing for us to work together. Uh, um, each one of us, we didn't know what it means. I didn't know what it means to be a product manager. But when we joined the team over time, that what's really important is how does a team build itself and how, do, how does a team can actually face challenges that, they, that we face as we build a startup. And startup is just a long journey of challenges, right? And actually, as a team, you learn to see what works for you. The team, in the end, is the most important thing that we have because this is like all the checks and balances. Are, do, do you have enough trust? Do you have enough brains? Do you have enough muscles? So you need to think about the team as a core capability that will allow you to overcome all sorts of uh, challenges that you see along the way. And over time, so we worked together in the IDF and we felt like this is a really good team that we get along together very well. We like working together. It's fun for us. And that's how we started. Over time, so we had Adalon, we had Microsoft, of course, we have 20 years of experience now. It's more than I know my partner, right? So basically you get to see that this is a team that you want to run with. And I cannot imagine myself working with others right now. It's basically, this is my team. So I think that's how we chose and we continuously choose. So when we moved to Microsoft, we chose to be together. When we founded Wiz, we chose to do it again together. And it's rare. It's rare, but if you have that trust and that connection and it's hard to replace. And if you add a sort of big global purpose with the connection and the relationship and the trust you've built, you can dominate the world, as you say. Now, as you were together as founders through previous startups, did you like face any low points that you were able to navigate together because of this relationship you built? Maybe one or two tips there, because it's really hard for people founding teams together. And sometimes different disagreements creep in and teams break. And a lot of stats say that one of the biggest reasons teams fall apart is because of co-founders. So what are some ways you found that in the toughest times at the lowest points, we can stick together? So the key thing in the end is trust. Even if I can argue with my co-founders all day long, but they know we all come from the better intention for the team. It's never myself. It's never one or the other. It, we really do what we think is best for the team. And the other thing is to know also that in the end, there even within a, a founding team, there is a process to do decision-making and there are clear roles, okay? And within us four, so we know which, like who owns what. It's very clear. Although in many teams, I see that there are overlaps and CTO, R&D, product, CEO, what does it... For us, it's very clear. What do we actually, each one are responsible for? And how do we take decisions? And who has the final word, right? In the end. So we all agree that if our CEO says so, we just agree, okay? That they, they agree to disagree and we continue and we move forward because we understand. So I think these two mechanisms, trust, deep trust, okay? Really deep trust. And then ability to decide and move forward are key. You said something beautifully early on is people build companies and companies don't build people. So the team is the core engine that drives everything. Now let's go back to building Wiz in the early days. How did you go about early customer development? How did you get your first customers? Yeah, it's a great. So first we founded Wiz just 
during COVID time. Everything was shut down. It was all Zoom. But basically, we over the years, we grew a lot of uh, customer focus in mind. And you know, it's easy to say customer focus, but in the end, it's really and became one of our core values in the sense that we used our VEST VC network and fans from the Adelome and Microsoft days. And basically, we connected with over 100 different CISOs, like security officers that would be our potential customers. For a short time, like three months, we just had calls and calls. And we practiced listening, okay? Practiced listening means that we came to a call and it's I think it's a very effective way we could actually use 30 minutes a call even less I would present for five up to 10 minutes no more what is our agenda who are we what are we thinking that is the problem and the pro proposed solution and then talking for 20 minutes just listening what does the customer has to say about this and this actually drove us to really understand actually we pivoted three times Okay, in these short three months, we pivoted three times. We thought one idea, but we realized there wasn't really the sense of urgency there. So we pivoted and we realized at some point that we actually hit on a point that was repeatable. Customers actually were tuning in when we actually said these words, describe the problem, describe the solution, and then we honed on that specific problem. Now, from that moment, we actually always were looking for the next step. So how would a customer actually use Wiz? So that was a mindset. What would make the customer use Wiz today and be valuable today? No design partners, no, like actually using Wiz in their environment. And I think that was what was driving us much faster than what we would have done otherwise. So that's basically where we started. And then when you were, I guess I'm actually fascinated by this. You went through three pivots in 18 months and grew so fast, became a $6 billion company. What was the first idea? What were the other two pivots? Okay, so it's actually great. It's in cloud security. I can talk about cloud security, but we wanted to do cloud networking at first. We had a really great idea. We thought this is the future. And we went to our potential customers, the CISO, and everybody told us that basically it sounds fantastic idea. Everybody told us it's a fantastic idea. But when we asked, okay, so what is the next step? Nobody could tell us. They told us we, we don't really know our cloud. I'm not sure where it would fit in our my cloud because I have no visibility to my cloud. And that way we started pivoting actually to the area where we are today, which is basically I'm going to give you the best cloud visibility and risk assessment that you will know what you need to do and where you need to apply controls. And that was the initial. So we had a few steps there, but I think it's, it's funny because we came from cloud security, but putting the head of a, 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 the entrepreneur and asking questions, actually, we relearned what are the problems in cloud security, which is, I think it's a really interesting uh, insight. We started with the wrong idea. It wasn't uh, uh, urgent enough for customers. They didn't know how to apply it. And we weren't in love with the solution. So nobody thought, oh, we, we raised money on that solution. Now we need to proceed with it. Or the CTO didn't say, really like this technology. We just moved on with the customer. And that's actually a, a, the important thing. And it was really short. It was just three months of, let's call it like ideation and validation. And then we felt like we clicked. So that's on the, that product market thing. How do we know it clicked? Customers told us, okay, let's deploy. I want to see it in action. 
when you have a customer that tells you like envisions the next steps, tells you what, what needs to happen in order to see it in their environment, then you know you're in the right direction. And was there like a set number of customers or a KPI like high retention or they were paying you? Like, how did you know that this pivot is going to be the thing that explodes us? We asked two questions. What are the next steps? And let's say it's all successful and we deliver up to the promise. How big of a problem is it to you? Is it a 10K problem, 100K, 1 million? Just give us an order of magnitude of the size of the budget you would allocate for that type of solution. If you have these two, you have intention and you have budget, then what's the overall area you're at? And uh, we, aimed, we aimed high, right? So I'm not saying any startup should aim, but we looked for the $1 million problem and also for the right here, right now type of no, not the longer cycles, etc. We wanted right here, right now, and one million dollar pro- uh, uh, scale of problems. So that's how we actually narrowed down on this. That's how we knew we're in. That's a good. That's a good framework to think about, especially for B two B startups. What is the size of the market? How high is the propensity to pay? And what is the level of? And if you get a ten on ten on each of them, then you got to go. You just go. I like it. You just go. Now you talk about ideation, validation. I want to double click on that a little bit. What are some, in your journey as a product leader, what are some key questions founders should ask potential customers as they're validating and ideating so they land on the right thing? Because they often say, Steve Jobs said this, if you ask your customer what they want, They'll tell you they want a faster horse. They, or Henry Ford said that they don't want a they don't want a car. But it's not about asking the customers what they want, but really listening to the problems and coming up with the solutions yourself. But a lot of founders miss this. What are some key hacks or ways to find to ideate properly and validate properly? You're you're absolutely right, and that's something it's very tricky, right? Because I think most customers. They didn't think about a solution like Wiz when they expressed like the, the problems they see in their cloud environments, but we came up with something that is different. And I think there are two reasons for it. One, I think as startups, we need to envision like how would an organization, it's not about the specific functionality or capability, but what would make a change in the organization your target? What would change the way things work for them? Processes. Functions. I like always to think about one function and how can I really change their daily processes in a way that obviates a lot of the not doing faster things that they already do. That's only optimization, but actually doing differently things and smarter. So that's one thing that is also, I think, critical in getting the customers to ask, what are you doing today? What do you think that you need to do differently? And the other thing is technology. I think that the access to technology that we have today, you can innovate a lot by technology. And we use some really cool technologies that enabled us to reimagine their daily processes. So the agentless technology we use, the graph technologies we use, the ability to correlate very nicely uh, uh, the findings. So we make it easy. And the UI in Wiz is really simplifying things. And I, I mean, I think these are key technology capabilities that we incorporated 
to reimagine the daily lives of any cloud security professional. And that's basically, I think, the two things we should have in mind, technology and changing, providing them the ability to do more with their this. So these are the questions we usually ask. What are you using today? What would you like to do more? And, but you need to attentively listen. And I'll just say one other last thing here. You need to emphasize with the customer in the sense that we ran also a part of our role at Microsoft was running the internal cloud security. So we actually had the privilege of being in our customer shoes for a long time. And this empathy actually creates the ability to think and understand them in a much, much more better way. So with this, I would just say that it's better to do something, a startup in an area you really know about, and that you had the privilege of actually experiencing yourself as a customer. Because customer empathy, you said it, is really important in building products. It's just not listening, but it's going deeper and feeling it with them, understanding it and feeling it with them. There's a few questions relative to this topic that have come in that I'd like to take. What method did you use to, to connect with everyone to, to get these first few conversations? Did you have relationships in that industry that you could just reach out for the network? Or did you cold email? Did you use LinkedIn? And how did you pick the initial questions to ask your future customers? So basically, it's mainly through our VC network. So I think VCs today are really evolving the way uh, they, they want to help customers, especially in the early phases. So we worked with the Sequoia Index, cyber-focused VC named CyberStarts, but they all connected us to their ISO networks and customers, and that gave us the first access. I think it's, you start from scratch, you don't benefit, like they don't have anything specific, but you do have access to this type. And I think this is the one thing when you do... Uh, get funding from a VC, you should ask yourself, can they help me like get this initial network? It's very important. We also had some friends, some LinkedIn, some friends from we knew from the past, but the majority was through the, the VC network. And the other benefit of working through the VC network is actually that you work with customers that are ready in their like state of mind to work with startups. They want it. Okay. So it's not like they're going to be surprised. You don't have a product at all that you're just showing them slides they know what they walk into so that's also very important and a lot of people they don't ask and the best way to build these relationships with vc i found from my experience is just talk to them and tell them what yes. you're working on and ask them for help even before you've taken their money and you talk to a lot of them you build relationships, a few will make intros, you keep them updated. It does two things. One, you get a warm intro to a potential customer or a validation partner. And the second, you've updated the VC. So now you've built the relationship with the VC. So by the time you need to raise money, they're already there because they've seen you go from A to B to C. Now, another question here is, do you recommend paid pilots or free pilots? Like when you've got these customers buy-in? I actually think everything has to translate to money in the end because it shows seriousness. So you can go on a free pilot, but it needs to be very clear that if this is successful, we're talking about a funded budget, a funded project, okay? I wouldn't go for anything. Free is easy, right? Anybody can engage. It's fun. It's free. We can give advice, but don't take, another advice is don't take advices from people who don't pay you. They don't really live through your problem yet. And it's, 
you need to see their level of uh, engagement and a paid project is part of it. They are actually paying for it. They think it's a service they want to get. It It is valued in their perspective. So I'm all into the value paid. I agree with you 100%. And I tell this to a lot of founders because free is easy, like you said. But if you build the muscle to get people to pay you, it only helps when you actually are a product market fit and have to build a sales team. It helps a lot from that perspective. Now, what is your long-term vision? for Wiz? So basically, I think Wiz in the end is going to enable any organization, development team to secure anything that they build or run in their cloud environment. I think that we have from multiple phases, like from coding to runtime, any clouds, any architecture, you can choose VMs, serverless, pass, containers, doesn't matter. And we want to do it in the simplest way possible. So in the end, Wiz will simplify cloud security for any organization out there. And that's a goal in the end. Just make it streamlined because today it's far from being simple. So you went from this early validation, you leveraged some relationships, some LinkedIn, some outreach, you validated the market, you got people to pay you for these pilots. But then you went from capturing 0% to 20% of the Fortune 500 in about two years or less. How did you do that? What were some tactics you used to acquire customers? Actually, we just built a product that, as we said, had a good product market fit in general. And it scaled very nicely in the sense that the engineering team that basically, I didn't mention it, but we, like Wiz and Adalom, are, we have the same core engineering team. So we have the same team. It's not just four. It's like more like 30 people that were uh, uh, started building Wiz at the get-go. And basically, these are the engineers that have done cloud security at scale for years. They just built a, a system that scales up. And we've seen like the experience in building products really shows in how Wiz operates. So this actually allowed us to get access to Fortune 500 the customers in a way that not only enabled us to get specific customers, it actually created the network effect because they saw it works at their scale with all the requirements on clouds. So basically it created a network effect that brought to us many of these customers. So you can see Wiz has very little marketing today. Actually, most of it is like inbound that we get from customers that heard about it from friends. And that's how we actually grew so fast. And I think it's a you let the product speak for itself. It's not product-led growth. I know it's a buzzword right now, but basically it's a customer-led growth. <laughs> so it's, it's even nicer. I like that customer-led growth. So your motion, your selling motion is still very top-down. You sell to the CISO or, or CIO in an organization, yes. but they experience it. They love the product. They bring the word to other people. And that referral has been a big driver. But if you don't have a good product, then you can't get referrals. Exactly. And today, as you've grown, has that evolved or still most of it is coming from referrals, the relationships and the network you've invested in? So now we are basically scaling out. So now we have, I call it the scale out phase. So now we have something, we've experienced it at Microsoft, like we, we start like with Adalone, like a, any product, you have it, now you need the machine working, right? Now you need to scale it up to not only the enterprise market, also mid-market across 
different geographies, the regions. So now it's a scale out and now it's about scaling out a machine that will, uh, that will work and we just sell with. And so that's where we are focusing today. Of course, side by side with continuing innovation to the next products. So to build this machine, what are some key ingredients to get to build a successful scale out machine in your opinion? So it's the same, yeah, it's the same. I think one, I'll tell you, okay. So from the product side, I think it's like before you go and get like the marketing and the sales machines are all running. So first you need to really have a, a notion of what is a repeatable success you envision, right? So what is a type of sell motion? How does it look like from a customer perspective? We've done these mistakes in, in where we actually went to market but we reiterate, we iterated on the market after we already had sales. Now this actually creates much longer cycles. Um, so from there, we try to really do all of the first sales within the product and engineering team. So that helped us to stay really closed loop. The product was selling, the CEO was closing the deals, and these were all the first deals. Now, from there, once we saw the repeatable success, now you can move to the next. How do you grow sales and marketing? Same way that you grow every good team you bring leaders that you can trust that you have the same culture and you let them actually build their team and their processes and their system same way okay so it's actually you need to extend what we've done with product what we've done with engineering also to the sales and the marketing side and you let the you let them grow uh, the team with them and that's basically what worked for us really well and we have a really good culture, I think, across the different teams that actually supports it. So it's again about the team yeah. <laughs> and the culture. So when you say culture, maybe unpack that for us a little bit. What does culture mean to you and how does it play a role in scaling? Culture is probably the most important thing. Uh, even if you have a core people, core team of people that you trust, right? And we talked about it, how important it is. In order to scale it out, you need to basically build a culture that supports your values. So I'll give you an example. If we're saying we are customer focused and we are, we want to partner with customers. So it means that I, as a founder, as a VP of product, I have to go on customer calls every time, right? 30% of my time I'm spending with customers on calls. Why? Because I believe in it. That drives a culture of customer focus. Not because I'm doing it, because now everybody is doing it, right? And this becomes something that people uh, actually understand that this is like the way we do business. And that's very important. And we are always thinking, for instance, if I'm being asked about, should we do this on that, right or left? My only question would be, what would benefit the customer more? Okay. How is it better for the customer to do the, this option or that option and that actually drives the way we think about it so that's culture same thing about trust if we want to be have trust we want to have zero tolerance for uh, things that are not invoking trust we want to create trust as much as possible same thing about giving like making like a dni type of a, a, a environment that allows anybody to be uh, to actually bring themselves in their whole selves to work and to feel comfortable doing so. So it's the same thing. So we drive a culture of equality, inclusion. It's very important, these things, and it all comes from the culture you create. If you lose that option to create a culture, it's very hard to repair. 
okay? And, and you can see it with teams uh, that other teams, we, we could see people coming from uh, cultures. You won't retain the good talent if they don't agree with the culture you bring to the table. So that's something very important to have. And yeah, it's the DNA of the company. And so your values, your principles define that culture. And at the same time, if the founders and the leaders don't actually do that versus a lot of times it's just written on the wall versus people behaving that yes. way, and others won't emulate it. And you've got to do that day in, day out. So others I, emulate it as well. I believe only in lead by example. I can write as many values as I want on slides and walls, but we have to live according to these values and we need to express them every day again and again because that's what we believe in more than this that's what we believe will make us successful we believe this is the right thing for us for the company and we need to reiterate so actually i don't like writing values on slides and i like basically seeing the values being exemplified in our daily operation now zero to six billion in 18 months that's huge I'm sure there were some unconventional things your team did to turn that into growth opportunities, right? To turn any missteps or, or things that you saw along the way to move so fast. So let's dive into those. You said launching moments before a global health crisis. How did that turn into an opportunity for you? Actually, that turned out great because I was basically based in the U.S. We were like it was if you remember the old days, in order to have a customer session, you needed to travel quite a lot. Capacity that you could actually operate in was very low. We founded Wiz on March 2020, okay? That's exactly when everything shut down, stock markets are down, and there was a lot of uncertainty in the air. But actually, it turned out to be that we got the best garage time to work in. We got basically a full year of quarantine. Everybody is just looking for something exciting to do. We've built Wiz. We're talking to customers. Everybody was available. We thought we won't be able to have access to customers, but it was actually the contrary. Customers loved to talk to innovate, like changing the atmosphere, giving feedback in that time. And it was much easier thanks to remote work. So that actually switched. Like uh, we realized it only a few months later, but at the time, we really thought it's the biggest mistake. We left Microsoft, we left the, we led the cloud security group at Microsoft. It was at least a billion and a half dollar business and we founded Wiz and then everything crashes. It's good. We're happy. That's how we turned turning, out. Turning, sort of t t making lemonade out of uh, rotten lemons, maybe, or lemons. Now, <laughs> starting with the wrong name, tell me more about that you mentioned. So we said we started with cloud networking. Actually, the initial name of Wiz was Beyond Network. So we really wanted to do cloud networking and we named Wiz Beyond Networks. Uh, we thought it's cool, uh, but then we changed the idea. But the problem was that we kept being routed to the networking team because of our name. And then we said, wait, we have to change the name. So we actually went back to change the name. In the US, it's easy. In Israel, it's much harder. It took us a lot more time. Uh, but uh, my take on this is, don't start with a name that basically describes or uh, correlates to your first idea. The idea would probably change. You don't want to change the entire company. Choose something like Wiz could describe anything. So basically choose something generic that you like and you can leave, give it the value you think of. And so that's something we also learned not to do. How did you get the domain name? 
actually we chose the name because we got the domain domain name so it was the other <laughs> way around basically you're saying is pick some generic name that you can get the domain to and you'll give it the, the meaning and the brand which is amazing actually i've rarely heard this but this is unique and interesting you also talked about recruiting too many employees at the start i think you you came with your whole team tell me more yeah. about that how did that work or so, didn't work because most so startups like start very small right yeah yeah so usually they all tell you start until you get to product market fit then start like recruiting we just we are a team uh, so it means that the entire team just basically we started march in april we had like half of the team in may we had all of the team so basically we had the team with us and basically we didn't have an idea yet we were still iterating ideating uh, so actually the uh, uh, any according to playbook that's a mistake but in fact what we actually did in this time we built some very so think about having the best engineers building the best infrastructure they, like they choosing the best technologies relearning everything they were used to actually upgrading to the newer technologies to the best technologies assessing them and having enough time to set the foundations we did that actually allowed us to move so much faster once we got the idea once we honed on the idea so that allowed us to move so much faster and that was critical okay so that's something that we actually benefited from so think about the CICD the delivery pipeline like the ability to automate testing everything was two things the question here asked is how much did you pay for the domain name <laughs> not a lot that was like quite little back then because it didn't have a brand and a name now i'm sure it will be more <laughs> <laughs> so now you also learn from past mistakes that you implemented at Wiz from Adalon. Let's talk about building features that aren't scalable. Yeah. So I think that in Adalon in startups you tend to build a lot of things that you're feeling like okay we're going to try it out. And I think it it correlates a lot to the notion of what is an MVP. So you say yeah let's try something small and then let's see if it sticks. It's not the idea behind an MVP. and they i think that what we've learned over the years is that everything should be very deliberate when you actually ship features so there is no trial and error in that sense you should be very deli- deliberate on what you deliver and how would it like i always call call it like the life the life cycle cost of a feature and that's basically something that we learned over time we didn't do it in the past so we used to ship a feature and then we thought oh my god now we need to do more to support it now we are very deliberate on what we ship and what we don't ship because we understand if we're going to deliver this feature now it's actually going to require us to invest in it this much in the future so having this really end to end view on the life cycle cost is critical because then you can actually maintain your technical debt so that's something that you definitely be- yeah i want to double click on this a little bit right because sometimes like you said rightfully what you don't build is more important how do you prioritize what to build and what not to build what is the framework for that so for me it's simple i will build only the things that i can be best in so i can always literally be the best solution in doing it and i can maintain them over time so only when i have these two requirements and maintain them over time means that the uh, the product is round i can support the deployment i can support customers in using it i can actually maintain it performance wise cogs wise and so on 
this is what it means to support it over time. And then also, I want to be the best in it. I don't want to ship features that I know I'm going to be less than others and won't be able to defend them. So basically, this is how you choose initially, like in the, especially in the first capabilities of the product, that's what you choose to focus. And I think it's a very healthy culture to continuously remind yourself and the team, what are the things that you don't build and why? Okay, this helps you to focus and focus is the most important thing. I call it the entrepreneur's FOMO because when you start, there are lots of things that sound really good and you always fear of missing out features that you may have done. In the end, you have to choose a path and stick to it because if you start having FOMO and go too broad, you will definitely lose. Okay, you're losing time, you're losing focus, you're lo losing customers because you want to be the best. So that's something that is very important on what you don't build. I like that, be an inch wide and a mile deep rather than going too broad and losing focus, which, is, which, can, which caused many companies to fail. Now, you mentioned product debt here and technical debt. How do you determine product debt in a company? Okay, so product debt is, a, I don't know if it's a common term. I actually I invented it for myself and the team, but actually product debt is, a, if we think about life cycle costs, so product debt is anything that is not covered today. So product debt would be, for instance, lack of uh, support for scale, lack of technology debt, for sure. But also things around, you cannot build a product that is not round. You cannot build a product that is not feature complete. So you can start with one feature, but if you go too far and now you're leaving two space behind you, you need to go back and implement all of these features. And now you created a product gap because the product doesn't feel right, doesn't feel like it's complete. You're missing buttons, you're missing functionality. And that's something bad, okay? That's something that customers are very sensitive to and you really don't want to be in that position. So product debt is the overall debt that you have in supporting the product and making it like a complete. Now, talk to me about signing the wrong customers. That sounds very interesting and maybe some, some sort of, as you look back, some laughs there. Yeah, signing some wrong customer. I think that there is in the beginning of a startup, it's you're eager to sign customers. And what we have learned that we did some, uh, we went to like with some customers that actually dragged us into direction that we didn't want to go to. That's in the Adelon days. And we, we found ourselves investing in areas that actually were really far from where we thought we should be investing just because we had this and that customer. So that's something that you should be very mindful of. If you are seeing like outlier customers, it's not that they are bad customers. It's not that may, it's not that they are wrong, but these may not be the right customers for you at the current time. And it's very important because you don't want to have customers that will churn on you or will expect one and say, there was one CISO that we worked with. And afterwards we like basically, so we asked why Wiz in the end, it was a Fortune 100 customer. And he said something that was actually fascinated me. He told me Wiz was the only vendor I ever worked with that consistently under promised, but over delivered. And when he said that, I realized that it's keep your focus. You don't want to go with the customers that you won't be able to live up to their expectation. You want, don't want to overpromise. 
stay very focused with the customers that you know they will be happy with you. And that's, I think, how you choose customers wisely. Now, cybersecurity and specifically cloud security is very hot these days. What is your view on the market and what are some interesting trends you're seeing in the space overall? So we accrued some, I think there are three motions, okay? One, digital transformation. We're using technology more than ever. A second, cloud is happening, right? So most of the technology we use is either in the cloud or in the process of migrating to the cloud. And obviously cloud grows uh, accordingly. And the third thing is that I think that most of the technology that we built in the past was not really with security in mind in the sense that uh, security came after the fact. So we created a whole lot of, I think, security gap. Uh, and it's like a global warming, right? It's like the climate change. We keep on building, but we don't close the security gap. And we're, sh- we're seeing the impact of this in the daily life. I think cyber is becoming much more much more present in the sense that we feel it, we hear about it, and we know it's there. And we were, many of the folks I know were impacted by it directly, either as PII leaking, either as their company was breached. So that's something that we really need to understand. And the gap that was formed is like a huge vacuum that the market will need to close over the next few years. It's a must. So you can see now with the executive orders in the US, like the market is shifting dramatically to close this. But that's basically, I think the my view, at least on the cybersecurity market, we created a gap, we are paying for that gap. And now there is a huge shift in closing that. And it's great. Like we realize there is a problem and we are here to solve it. So that's definitely there. <laughs> As you build your product and your company, what do you think in the product made it different from everything else in your market? Because there are also competitors, right? And when you build a $6 billion company in such a short time frame, you start attracting all kinds of competitors. So what makes it different than others? Yeah, we went into a red ocean in the sense that there were dozens of companies doing the same thing, even some very big ones. But we realized all of them, I call it like first generation. They solved some of the problems, but they didn't get the real problem, okay? And in order to solve it right, I think what was missing is simplicity overall. So making it simpler to do cloud security. And the way to do it simpler, and that's the technology we applied, is basically, first, forget about agents. Agents is just complexity, it's a nightmare. So we removed the need for an agent because we developed like this agentless technology that helps you like analyze workloads, containers, serverless without running a single agent. That's again, thanks to cloud APIs. That's fantastic. It removes like 90% of the friction of any other cloud security tool. Now, the second thing is ease of use. I think that most of the world today, most of the security teams, they don't know cloud security to the level they are expected to know because it's simply too complex. So one of the key roles of Wiz is to simplify their crawl, walk, run process in a way that doesn't make them feel left out, in a way that supports them in that journey. And I think that ease of use was actually different than anything else in the market. And the third thing is like, how do we think about delivering a really actionable type of view and security has done the scene of I'm going to show you everything that is bad in your environment and you're going to be bombarded with alerts. That's the wrong approach, period. Okay. The right approach is to tell you 
I'm going to show you everything that is wrong in your environment, but I will show you where to start from. And that's key. I will help you find what are the key things you need to focus on. And that's basically, I think, where Wiz really differs from others. And it shows when a customer just connects Wiz, even though they had other solutions in place, they're saying, oh, this is completely different. This gives me the ability to do so much more than what I was doing until today. And I think that's a differentiation. You talked about simplicity a bunch, and I want to unpack that because as companies are building products from idea to product market fit and potentially hyper growth, they often think about, oh, I got to add this feature, the other feature. They make it inevitably very complex. And that complexity was maybe good back in the day, but complexity doesn't equal growth. So unpack simplicity for us. How should startups think about building their products? towards hypergrowth with simplicity. So I can tell you simplicity is everything. Complexity is the enemy. And you should really think about it that way. Complexity is the enemy in the sense that it will prevent you from doing things right as you scale. So there was a saying in Hebrew, if it won't be simple, it's simply not going to be. Okay, so basically you should really, I think, appreciate the value of simplicity in anything that you do, in the products you deliver, in how you build your products, in how you think about the problem. You have to be able to explain everything in a simple manner. If it's not simple, then it's probably not there yet. Okay, so it's a key component to not only to how we build products for scale, but in anything that we do. And that's like really one of the, you talked about values and culture. Simplicity is a value. Don't tolerate complexity. It doesn't have to be that way. <laughs> so what are some examples maybe in products you've seen that can be complex, but then if you were to take a stab at it, you would remove some things, maybe just one or two things yeah, to make it crystallize it for the audience. You can get a lot with an agent, okay? But the agentless piece makes things simpler because you don't need the agent, you can get a whole lot without the agent. So why would you go with the agent piece? That simplifies 90% of the headache. So that's simplicity. Another thing of simplicity, so I'll give you an example with security. I don't know why security products love bombarding you with technical details, but to be honest, the people who are actually consuming the feeds from the uh, security products, usually they don't care about the technical details. They just want to know how to fix it. And I think this is something else that we did. We basically used a graph instead of explaining everything. We used like a very simple graph that tells you, here is a problem. Here is why you should take care of it. And here is the one point you should take an action on. So making it simple using visuals, using more analysis in the, in, in the like backend to don't make your users work to drive value out of your product. Just make sure it's valuable at the get-go. So that's like the type of, simplicities that you want. A question here, Anil asks is, how do you measure what is complex versus simple? Because maybe you need a number of features to serve the customer to get that core outcome for them. So you can always be more complex, right? You can always build more complex, but it's much harder to build simpler. So the question is, in general, the way I think about it is, again, going back to the life cycle cost, do an exercise with yourself and think about how would it scale? How would it work? How would I be able to support it? How would I be able to deploy it? How much time does it take to deploy? 
So ask yourself all of the tough questions on the life cycle cost, and then multiply it by the number of customers you want to have. Of course, you will have some features, you, like they have to be complex, but actually, if you put simplicity as a value, you will see that you can do things easier. You can give up some of the functionality in order to make it simpler, and it's better. Simpler is better. So that's like the exercise that I'm doing. And I can give you another exercise. When we're, we have multiple PMs and we have multiple products in the pro, uh, products within the portal, but when there is a need for a new page, okay, or a new UI construct or a new area in the product, it always has to go through a, like through me to question, okay? Why do we need a new page? Couldn't we use one of the other constructs? Couldn't we basically double down on what we already have to simplify it? And that's like another practice that you can do. You can take it to your environment, but in general, it has to be simpler. Now, tied to that, as startups are building from idea to product market fit and potentially hyper growth, what are some key KPIs you recommend measuring, especially from the product side? And what are some key KPIs that are top of mind for you? Yeah, I measure three things in the end. Value, like how much value do I give to the customer? That's mainly like the question on the, you know, budget. Is it like a 1K, 10K, 100K, $1 million problem? Tell me how valuable it is for you. So that's one. Second is time to value. How much time would it take you to get to this value with an average customer? Would it be, twist? it's five minutes. With other tools, uh, it may take months maybe years to deploy across your environment. So ask yourself your time to value question. And the third thing is how much uh, debt did you accrue along the way? Like if you're building fast and you accrued a lot of debt, you're just gonna suffocate yourself in very soon. So you need to make sure that as you go forward, you don't accrue too much debt so you can continue and run fast. The other way to measure debt, by the way, is like debt velocity. Are you seeing your devs running fast and not slowing down? Because if they are slowing down, basically you accrued too much debt and now they are starting to pay to it, for it. So that's basically the three factors, at least that I think if I think about KPIs, that's the way I think about it. Value, meaning the size of the problem, time to value, which is huge, I think. It's a massive one. And that time to value is also the leading indicator of retention, probably, right? If customers don't get a time to value, chances of them churning are higher. And the technical debt. How do you determine, though, that you've accrued some technical debt? Only the velocity. How do you put those? In the end, it's the velocity. I can share with you, like in in Adalon, we grew, like in the first startup, we grew from 20 developers to 60 developers, but the productivity didn't grow. Like we kept the same pace of feature releases. And the reason is that we accrued too much debt and we had to pay like the 40 developers to close the gap of the first year. So basically you can really measure like how many engineers do you have? What's the capacity, the velocity that they have? And you have to see that it's not slowing down. If it slows down, just ask your VP R&D, what do we need to do to improve velocity? And then you should invest in closing that debt. It's important. It's really important if you run, you want to run a marathon, not a sprint. If you want to run a sprint, do whatever you want. If you want to run to a unicorn to grow to bigger, so then you basically have to run, prepare for a marathon. Beautifully said. Life and business is a marathon, not a sprint, and you got to pace <laughs> yourself to, to run that. Now, your organization you mentioned is 
flat. And that is very interesting because a lot of companies are very hierarchical and they think that it's needed. Tell me more about how the company is structured and why this flat structure is beneficial. So we love, we appreciate independence and accountability and responsibility in every individual. So in order to achieve that, we basic and efficiency, of course. So in order to do that, we actually created a, a flat organization where everybody is working, everybody's working in squads. So it means that if I have a PM, one, two devs, a researcher, they don't have like team leads to watch them over. They just work as a squad to accomplish like a feature set and so on. And they work in the long run together. And we actually, so that allows us to move very fast. We don't have layers of communications. If I need something to get done, I can go to the developer, just talk to them and they can basically implement it. Same thing about the PM. So it's very flat in that sense. The flip side of having a flat organization is that we need to recruit a certain type of people that can actually manage themselves very holistically, see the end-to-end, prioritize, and do all of this themselves. And also, most importantly, they should know when to raise a flag when they need help. They need to know when they need help. So that's like another skill that you really want to attribute that you want to have when you recruit. But as to it, we are still flat. We're growing very fast and still flat. That's within the R&D org, right? In the marketing sales, obviously, it's a bit different. But in the R&D organization, we kept flat. How big is the company right now? How many people? So we are over 300 people. Wow. And what portion of that is R&D? Yeah, about a third. About a third. So keeping a 100% flat organization. And I like the squad structure. You have a PM, you have a few devs, you have a UX person. And they know the mission, the values, the purpose, and the metrics. And they're autonomously driving that goal. You're not micromanaging them, and you can ask a bunch of people. But how do you find this kind of people? Chris asks here, do you do some sort of personality profiling? Because some people like to work, or it's not that they like to work in a hierarchical structure, but rather years and years of conditioning has made people accustomed to working in a hierarchical culture or structure where they're looking for direction and they're looking for praise, feedback, and approval. So how do you profile and find these kind of people? You're right. It's tough. It's part of the challenge in uh, recruiting to the team is actually profiling exactly those that are they are independent. They are they love working in a team. Okay, so they have to be team players. They have to self-pace really good. So yeah, we profile them, and it's part of the challenge of building like an A team, right? You want to really make sure that you created this fabric of really good people that can actually work together in any crossing you have. So that's again going back to culture and how you maintain a culture across your team. Now, when you interview people, are there like on your product team, are there one or two things people say or signals like that you're like, okay, I want to work with her. I want to work with this person. Or there are some things they may say that you're like, oh, this is not going to jive here. So I, I actually love many things. I love the, the curiosity, the humbleness, right? The ability to say, listen, I, I don't know. I love this. I keep, I'm talking to PMs who have done, I don't know, container security for years now and i'm asking them so about this space and they're start by saying listen i'm not an expert in this but guess what you are an expert but you see that they have this curiosity to know more 
and you see that they are eager to learn. And the other thing that I'm always looking at is, are you listening? Are you, do you really listen? Do you try to understand? Do you pause to make sure you got the right things? Are you a team player? So these are the type of things that I'm very sensitive to in PMs, for instance. But of course, R&D is a bit different, but for PMs, for sure. Now, as you look back at your awesome career across successful startups and working at a large company, is there anything you wish you did more of or wish you did less of? So I'm going to say something about myself, right? I don't know if it's true, too, but I always feel like we, I could have gone faster. I was, in many cases, I think I was waiting for a feedback loop that came eventually. But in the end, I realized that I could have gone faster. And when you see like a, the cycles in Wiz, it's like in Adalom, but on speeds. Like we basically didn't wait for the feedback loop. We just, so we can recruit good people, great. We're gonna recruit all of them. We can raise money, great. We're gonna raise money. We don't have more product market fit, great. We're gonna keep iterating with, custom, with customers to get it right. So it's only pushing for faster and faster. It's almost like you, the realization that you can lose the market by not running fast enough and you can run faster. So that's something we realized. I think that it's easier said than done, but it's like I feel that this is something that I wish I did more, like run faster every moment. I don't know how much faster you can run in, in 18 months getting from zero to six billion, but it seems like you've ran on fire here. What's one piece of unconventional advice that founders ignore, but should, I'm sure you talk to and mentor dozens of founders. And what is one thing you've found that people don't listen to, but actually should focus on? So I talked about a lot about team building, right? And I know, uh, I think people realize that it's less about the idea and more about the team. Uh, build a team, but actually an unconventional, I know it's not said much, but it's almost not like, not learning from failures, not stopping to learn from failures. It's actually double, doubling down faster on success, okay? So I think it's very human to look back and interrogate and think, what did you do? Where could you have done better? But actually the question is always like, what worked for us and how can we do this more and faster? And don't stop to pause about, there is too much done with like mistakes, going back, just go faster and faster, right? And that way you improve, you realize what's working for you, what is good. So double down on success. Uh, that's one piece, I don't know, I have advice. That's actually great. Don't belabor on things that didn't work and do like analysis paralysis. Just keep doubling down on success because every little bit you do better on successes that compounds and help you grow effectively has compound interest here. Are you active on any social channels? Where does the audience follow you? Oh, LinkedIn mainly and the Wiz blog, of course. <laughs> Wishing you all the best. Hopefully the next time we speak, it's double the six. It's a $12 billion company. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Traction Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star review. And you can find all the information mentioned in today's episode at tractioncoff.io. That's T-R-A-C-T-I-O-N-C-O-N-F dot I-O.